you guys do as well. So um, if we also, if you are, uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. If you do not have one, there should be one under a chair in front of you you might could grab and use for this morning uh, to follow along with me. I'm going to read a long portion of scripture uh, and I won't be able to get to all of them, but my prayer is this is just a start for you for the week. Um, just to be able to, to start considering, to think about these, to read them, and also apply them to your life. And so uh, we also have sermon notepads back there. If you ever want to take notes, we have little pads you can rip off or rip one of the papers off and take some notes on them and then take it throughout the week to be able to think about it, meditate on it, to be able to um, you know, bring it back each uh, throughout the week as you go and pray over these things. And last week, uh, we, uh, as I said, if you turn into Bible Hebrews chapter 12, we were finishing off talking about the chastening of the Lord or the discipline of the Lord. This is our fourth message in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, the first part, we started off running the race. That's what we challenged our graduates with doing is going to run their race. And then we talked about the discipline of the Lord, how we sometimes get off track and God uses discipline. He uses chastening to put us back on track, to keep us on the right path. And then this morning, we're going to close out with an illustration that he's going to use uh, to, uh, to really drive this point home to us. Now, Hebrews was written uh, by an unknown author. We don't know who the writer was, but obviously, we know God inspired it. It certainly has a known and stated purpose. When you read Hebrews, you get to the end and you understand that, that there, there's one thing for sure. Jesus is greater than all, right? Like it is, it is a picture of showing the superiority of Jesus over everything. And these Hebrew believers who were Jewish by, uh, by nature, they had come to know Jesus Christ, but some of them were struggling. They were struggling because some of them had turned back from the Lord and they had gone back to the sacrificial system. Basically, they said, well, we tried Jesus for a while, but we feel more comfortable making our own sacrifices, doing it our own way, doing through, going through the ceremonial law of the Jewish uh, belief system. And so they had begun to waver and turn away from Christ. And those who were trying to do right, still believing in Jesus Christ, they were struggling. And they needed to be encouraged. They needed to be instructed. They needed to uh, be encouraged to not let apostasy set in and to not let discouragement knock them off their path. And so as they were wavering, that the writer comes to them and says, listen, hold on to your confession to Jesus Christ. I want to tell you how important that is. I want to instruct you on how important it is to keep Christ over all things. And he went through this process of showing how Jesus was greater than all the prophets. And he listed just about all of them. You know, Abraham and Moses and some of them, they were, they were all really big deal, a uh, big deal to the Jewish believers. And, and basically, the writer of Hebrews say, they're nothing compared to Jesus. They are a shadow. They, are, they were pointing to the one who could save. And then the whole sacrificial law. Ceremonial law, like I said, had become an important part of the Jewish belief system. And yet now, through this sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and through His blood and His sacrifice on the cross, it is far greater and superior than that could ever be. And so the writer is saying, you're trying to trust in this blood of bulls and goats and these other things, but Christ is so much more superior than that. And if He is more superior than that, 
You need to press on. You need to persevere. You need to hold fast to your confession. And he also goes through and tells them about how he's greater than the saints and he's greater than the angels. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the temple. Nothing greater than Jesus, past, present, or future. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling them. And, and you know when your mom gives you a good talking to about things you need to know, right? And they get to the very end and then they summarize it one more time for you. Like, in case you didn't get it, here it is one more time for you. That's what he's doing in Hebrews chapter 12. He's going to illustrate it one more time. He's going to summarize one more time to make sure they get the message. If you turn away from Jesus Christ, then you turn away from all of it. You lose everything. It is not Jesus plus these other things, and you can hold on to these things, and they make you righteous, and Jesus makes you righteous. No, what he's saying is when you turn away from Jesus Christ, you turn away from it all. It's not Jesus plus these things or Jesus minus other things. It is him and him alone. There is no option B. There is no door number two. It is Christ and him alone. And we need to persevere in that. And when we turn away from Jesus, there's nothing else that can save you. There is nothing else that is more important than the main thing. Jesus told his disciples this in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are many ways to Jesus Christ, but there's only one way to God. Now, the only one way to God is Jesus Christ. Now, how we come to Christ is radically different. I was talking to some pastors this week, and one of them was uh, very, uh, a very uh, uh, illustrated testimony. He was telling about his life and how he was dealing drugs, and he was hard into the world, and he was doing all these things. And then Christ saved him out of the middle of that, and it was a radical transformation for his life. And he looked at me and says, what about you? And I said, well, I got saved when I was nine years old, but when I was eight years old, I stole a few cookies. But other than that, I, I don't have like a radical testimony, right? And uh, you might be saying you stole more than a few cookies. But anyway, maybe it was more than a few cookies. But anyhow, it, 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 there are many paths to Christ. We all have different testimonies. And what a wonderful testimony it is to have a testimony in the Lord. By the way, if you have a testimony in the Lord, that's your testimony. That's the testimony God gave you. Don't ever be ashamed of it. When I was younger, like I said, many times you think about your testimony. You think, well, there's nothing so great about it. But now that I have kids... I love for them, to, would, for them to be able to have a testimony of being saved at a young age and living for God their whole life, right? That's a great testimony too. And it's a great testimony when people live in the world and God radically transformed their life. What a great testimony of those who have Damascus Road, uh, Damascus Road experiences, great testimonies. But the point being is many ways to Jesus, but only one way to God. We all go the same way. I'm a pastor and I preach God's word, but I don't go to heaven because of that. I'm not different than you or anyone else who has taken a breath on this earth. We are all sinners. We have all been separated from God and there's only one solution. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. There are many paths to Jesus, but only one way. And when you turn away from Jesus, you lose it all. And the only way that that's, you must continue to persevere in that, don't back away from your commitment in Christ. He is worthy to be pursued. Take another step, persevere in the faith, push the world away, and keep pursuing Christ with all that you have because there's no other option that's going to make you better than you are with Christ. 
And listen, I'm, I say that this morning, the writer says this as well, that many people say, well, I'm going to try Jesus for a little while. If it doesn't work out, I'll go back to my old way, or maybe I'll just add him to my beliefs, or maybe I'll just be more happy with knowing that I know Christ and saying that when I die, I might go to heaven because I have confessed him at one time in my life. But, but what the writer is saying, no, currently, consistently, every day of your life, pursue Jesus Christ. That's the way that you live this life. That's the way you pers- persevere. That's the way you make sure you do not fall away. And the writer uses a very familiar illustration this morning to the Jewish people. They would have known this very well. To us, it's a little harder. But my prayer is by the time I get done, you can see this picture and this illustration will mean something to you just as it meant something to them. And so the writer contrasts two different mountains. He, he shows the Jewish people here, and he's telling them, I want to show you this Mount Sinai, and I want to show you Mount Zion. I want to show you all that Sinai represents, and then I want to show you all that Mount Zion represents. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, he begins. I want to read from 18 all the way to the end. Like I said, I know it's a little lengthy, but I want you to follow with me. So verse 18 says this. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying it was in the sight, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are being shaken as of the things that are made and, uh, and, and that the things which are which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. I don't know about you, but just reading Hebrews is a masterpiece, right? I mean, it kind of draws you in. I mean, I told you from the beginning, as a literary standpoint, it is a masterpiece. And sometimes as we see this, it gets lost in the impact of what we say because, like I said, we don't really have the background and we don't really have the audience of what the original Jews would have understood. But as these uh, truths unfold, let's talk about first about Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is not mentioned in verses 18 through 21, but it certainly is what's inferred. Everyone would have known he's talking about Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai represented the Old Covenant. 
When you read your Bible, you have the Old Covenant and then you have the New Covenant, right? You have the Old Testament, you have the New Testament. The Old Testament is, is, is dominated by the Mosaic Covenant, the law. It's associated with when God spoke to Moses and gave the law, the Ten Commandments. And the mount itself, like I said, represents this Old Covenant. And listen, if you read much of the Old Testament, if you did the Bible throughout a year, and you made it past numbers. Many of you know what I'm talking about, right? A lot of times we go really good until numbers and then we kind of fall away. But if you push through and you read the Old Testament, you realize there's a radical difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And mainly in the Old Testament, you see the fear of God. You see the seriousness of God. You see the holiness of God. You see God say, you touch this and you will die. And you see uh, the ark fall and someone go to grab the ark and sure enough, he dies. You see God say, who's for me on this side, who's not for me on this side, and the ground opens up and swallows them, you know? I mean, you see some things that strike fear and reverence, and you see this judgment, you see this law, and you see this description of God that comes from Mount Sinai. It began there. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt, if you remember, and that God was going to give them the covenant, but in the wilderness, God revealed to him, revealed to them about his holiness, God wanted to set the record straight of who he was and what, what kind of God they were pursuing. And Moses goes up to get the law, and on Mount Sinai, it shook and it thundered and the quaking was. And even verse 12, it says, you have come to the mount that might, not, that might be touched. Some people say, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an error in the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, you know it says it could not be touched. And now in verse 12, he's saying, this is the mount that might be touched. So there's an error in the Bible. Well, if you study it in the original Greek and you understand it, what it literally means is just a tangible mountain. It was a physical mountain, meaning that it physically existed and you could touch this mountain. And so it didn't mean like you could touch it, like they were allowed to touch this mountain. No, it simply meant it was physical or tangible because one thing was for clear and one thing was direct. That when the law was given, no one could touch that mountain. Matter of fact, not beast or animal. It said if they got close to it, kill it, stone it. Don't even let it even approach the holiness of God. And when you read it, it gives a terrifying account of what was happening in Jewish history. And matter of fact, here it even tells us that Moses quaked in fear. Moses was shaken to the core when he came into the presence of God. And when God demonstrated his holiness, his awesomeness, his, his, and no one could touch that mountain, it was so holy that no one defiled, no one human, no one who had sin in their life could step foot on that mountain. It represented the unapproachableness of God in his holiness and his righteousness. And through that, you saw his power displayed. It says there was fire, there was darkness, there was blackness, there was tempest. There were sounds of trumpets, which represented judgment. And there was voice of words that would thunder the mountain. There was earthquakes and mountains and smoking. And it terrified the people. It scared them to death. They knew they were dealing with a holy and righteous God. And no one dared to even go to that place or touch that mountain or even approach God in, 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 on that mountain. For man to think that he could come to God on his own basis was... A, was not even a possibility. 
They knew for sure they could never, ever climb that mountain. And they knew they could never, ever reach God. And that's what his point was. He was revealing to them how God was holy. And anyone who would try to pursue God could not do it in in and of themselves. And so far, Moses put up boundaries and he put them around and said, God exists, but he is holy and we are not. And we need to separate ourselves. And what it is telling us and what we understand from this and what the Jewish uh, understood from this is that he was a God of judgment. He was a God of holiness. He was a God of terror. That's what Sinai represented in their lives. That's what Sinai represented in their history. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, if you think you can go back to the law, if you think you're going to leave Jesus Christ and go back to Sinai, you're leaving it all behind. Because at Sinai, it only will bring you death as soon as you think you can approach God on your own merits and on keeping the law and keeping the sacrificial system, you're not going to make it. Because that has been shaken, that has been judged, and that has been deemed unrighteous way. You cannot do it. This mountain that you are seeking is, is, uh, represents the unapproachableness of God. And you think about that mountain, how would you like to try to live on that mountain? That sounds like something you would want to pursue if someone put that on a verbo description, right? It's a full of shaking and thundering and lightning. Don't you want to stay in an Airbnb on this mountain? No, you wouldn't ever want to even go near it. That's what the Jewish people would look at Sinai and say, we don't want to even approach it. And what, what the writer is trying to drive home to them is the holiness of God. And you are sinful people. Why do you think now you can pursue God when you knew you could not pursue God? That it was absolutely revealed in a point in history where God was unapproachable. And there is God and no one could approach Him. And human effort could never reach God alone. It never can. And listen, sometimes we go through religion and we go through processes and we get to the point where we think we're good enough to approach God on our own merit. The Jewish people had fallen for this. They had fallen for the law. They had fallen for pride. They had fallen through religion. They had fallen through national believism. They thought since we were Israelites and since we were Jews and since we could keep the law at Sinai, we can go pursue God on our own merit. We don't need Jesus Christ. Like, he's a good story, and yes, it's a good thing that he came, but yet we have our own way to God. We can make God, we can please God on our own merits, and they added to the law, and they disciplined themselves, and they lived according to the law, thinking they would be righteous. But what the writer is telling them, there is no hope in that. The hope of the law in the law is gone. And you think about that as for today. How, do we, how does that apply to us today? You know, we, we many times fall for the same thing as well, right? You talk to some people and you say, how do you know you're going to heaven? Or why would God accept you into his presence? And people say, I'm a good person. You don't understand. I'm a good person. My neighbor's a bad person. I'm a good person, right? Like they do things wrong and I do things right. Or maybe you might even get an answer like, hey, I'm a member of a church. I'm a member of a Southern Baptist church. I know I'm going to heaven, right? I'm a member or I've been baptized or I'm American. We're all Christians. We're all going to heaven. Listen, I'm a good person. I, I go to heaven or, I, or I'm going to heaven. I'm a member of a church. I've been baptized. That's just like Mount Sinai. Listen, when you come to Christ, you lay all that down. You, you lay everything aside and you trust in him and him alone. And when you, when you fall away from that commitment, when you fall away from that confession of faith in Christ, you are pursuing Mount Sinai. 
You are pursuing an impossible way to God. It won't happen that way. Christianity is not built upon your works. It's built upon the works of Christ. It is that Christ comes into your heart and He regenerates your heart. He changes your heart first. Then we're converted to the outside. Religion says reach God by the outside, by doing good works, by going to church. Be converted through the things that you do. And it's an easy trap because like one philosopher says, we are incurably religious. Are we not? We want to feel like we are pleasing God. We want to feel like we're in favor with God. But none of those things actually make us righteous with God. And Sinai, the law, good works, being a member of a church, being baptized, keeping the sacrificial law, the dietary laws of the Old Testament, what, what the writer is driving home, Sinai is not an option. It has been shaken. It has, been, it has fallen. The law will not get you to heaven. And if you're giving up Jesus Christ to go back to that, then you, have, you do not have hope. Paul drives this home as well in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. You can jot this down and look at this later. It says this, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, and we might be justified by, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. They say, if you want to go back to the law, no one will be justified by the law. No one will make it. No one can do it. And so if you think about your favor with God, or if you were to face God this morning, what would be your plea to the Lord? Would your plea include you being a good person? Would your plea include you going to church? Would your plea include saying that you were a member of a denomination or that you've been baptized? Let me tell you what the writer of Hebrews is driving home is that your plea better not be nothing of Sinai because it will not gain you favor with God. It will not. It cannot. It is impossible to be justified by the law any longer. But in contrast... Rather than believing in Mount Sinai, what should you pursue? Pursue Mount Zion. And he begins to describe Mount Zion in verse 22 through 24. Here's what he says about Mount Zion. He says, but you, see the flip, the contrast. This is Sinai. This represents not, not able to approach God. But now you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. He's saying, what a contrast. The old covenant under the law, trying to be obedient to it, uh, uh, trying to uh, please a God and an approachable God and trying to do right and, and keep the law, but rather now, by faith, trusting in something that is greater than all of that, Mount Zion, the new covenant, the covenant of faith, the covenant of the New Testament. Now, Mount Zion was not only obviously talking about a spiritual mountain, there was also a physical mountain called Zion. And this, this Mount Sinai, as they knew, that represented the law, Mount Zion symbolized something else in the nation of Israel, something else very important. Uh, Mount 
Mount Zion physically was the stronghold of the Jebusites. You remember the Jebusites in the Old Testament? They were closely related to the termites, all right? That's where they come from. No, that's a joke, by the way. The Jebusites occupied Jebus, which later became Jerusalem. And, And when they conquered it and David took over the city in the seventh year of his reign, he took the stronghold of the Jebusites, which was over Mount Zion. That was their stronghold. And that Mount Zion is now what we know as Jerusalem. And in Mount Zion, Mount Zion, David put the Ark of the Covenant there. And that was the dwelling place of God. And a lot of times you read through the Psalms and you read through some of the Old Testament uh, uh, poetry books. You'll hear them talking about Mount Zion and Mount Zion and Mount Zion. So it's, it's a spiritual representation of heaven. But it was also a physical mountain that the Jewish people would have known very well. It'd be like me saying, go to Jacksonville or go to, you know, this place or that place. They knew it. They touched it. They knew where this was. And on that mountain, rather than the law, was the sacrificial system. See, on that mountain was the covenant of God. And on that mountain, they had become to where they would go get their sins forgiven. And they would bring their sacrifices and the lambs were slain and the bulls were slain. And they were, they were invited to go to that mountain. And on Zion, they would go to that place to be able to have their sins forgiven physically through the sacrificial system. And it was a place where they would understand that through the law of Sinai, you would never approach that mountain. But Zion, every year you would go and approach God on that mountain and you would make, and the high priest would make a sacrifice or make an atonement for the sins every year. And so Jerusalem was built on those two mountains in between Sinai, which was in the wilderness, or in Zion, which was Jerusalem, and which was the overall theme of the history of the city of Jerusalem was the place where God accepted the sacrifices. And that meant God wanted a relationship with man, and through the law it was impossible, but through the sacrificial system it was temporarily possible, but then it began to be shaken there, and then through Zion pictures this offering that comes not of the blood of bull and goats from from who from the blood of Jesus Christ where did Jesus Christ die in Jerusalem in Mount Zion it represents the new covenant it represents the covenant that supersedes the old covenant it is not that he abolished the law he superseded the law Because he lived a life of the law and he paid the price for you and for me. And he took that sacrifice to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when he shed his blood and he offered the blood of Jesus Christ, when he offered his blood to God, it was accepted. And he was resurrected and he ascended on high into Zion. And if you're going to go to that place, how do we serve God? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of the new covenant. There it is. He's the mediator. He's the only one that can get you there. You're not your own mediator. You need someone to stand on your behalf, and that was Jesus Christ. And for you and for me, what a, what a thing to pursue in our life. And he's saying, don't go after the old. Stick with the new and persevere in your faith because that will bring you to this kingdom of Zion in the future. We read this twice, but I want you to think about this Zion a little bit, this heaven because I think for us, a lot of times people have used that phrase. Sometimes Christians are too, uh, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You ever heard that? Well, you know what? I think that's flipped in our recent years, right? We're too earthly minded to be any heavenly good, right? Listen, we have a, we have a tendency to latch on to things of this world. And we have a tendency to get real, uh, real focused on the things that's right in front of us. And many times we live for just the things that we see. 
We get very upset over the things that we see in our culture, the things that we see in our country, the things that we see going on in our world. And a lot of times people come to me and say, Pastor, why are you not upset about the world? Don't you know it's going to hell? Don't you know it's coming to a judgment? And I say, yeah, I read the Bible. I know it's heading that way, right? I mean, we know it's happening. We see it. We know it. But that's not our promise. Our hope is beyond this world. Our hope is in the city of Zion. Where is the city of Zion? It's of the living God. That's where God is. Let me tell you, he says right here, the heavenly Jerusalem. When you, get to, when you get to Revelation, what you realize is that the new heaven has a new city that comes out of it, the new Jerusalem. And what it finally says at the end, it says when it's all said and done, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, it says that God will dwell with his people and the people will dwell with God. What a, what a city. Is that not where you want to dwell? That's where I want to dwell. And he said, this is the city that you're living for. You're living for a heavenly Jerusalem, a city of God. And it's encamped by innumerable company of angels. Listen, next week, I'm going to talk about angels. You know, just thinking about not just one angel, but innumerable company of angels. Alyssa was talking about us singing in heaven. I don't think I'll be able to sing in heaven. But anyways, I'll be able to make a joyful noise, right? But I think about heaven. I think about the worship. I think about innumerable amounts of angels singing the worship and praise to God. I mean, what a city. And then he says the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, those who are registered in heaven. You know what that literally means? Those who are citizens of heaven. If you read later on in Paul's writings, you know what he tells us? He says, you're a sojourner. You're a pilgrim in this world. You are, you are in this world, but you're not of this world. You are just traveling through. You're going to heaven. And listen, every person who's trusted in Jesus Christ, this is not your home. This is not your home. This is, this is a broken world. This is a, this is a world that's been destroyed by sin. But we are citizens of heaven through Jesus Christ. And we ought to pursue that with our hearts because eternity is going to mean more than anything this world could ever give us. Anything. And in that day... Jesus is the mediator. Listen, when you come to that day and you want to be in that city, there better be only one thing that comes across your lips, and it is because of the blood of Jesus Christ that I'm standing before you. That's it. He's your mediator. He has done it. And let me tell you, he is a great mediator. He has paid the price for you and for me, and he never turns his back on for those who call on him. Jesus Christ will be there for you today, and in that day he will be with you, be for, be with you and the blood that he has sprinkled and the sacrifice that he has made is sufficient for you and it's for me. Every single week that I get up to preach the gospel, you know what gives me hope more than anything else? Not anything that I say, not anything that I can give you of advice or for the way that you can live or the way that I live. You know what gives me hope is that I know the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient, not just for my sins, but the sins of the whole world. And I could look to you and I could say that God loves you. And if you will confess and trust in Jesus Christ, that you could be part of this heavenly Zion, that he will be your mediator. And what the writer is pleading with them, why would you choose Sinai when you could live in heaven? And he's saying, if that's the case, if you know this, then why would you refuse to listen to God now? If you know this is your future and you know the past is not possible, why would you listen to him? And look at verses 25 through 29. He reasons with him a little bit. He says, if he shook the earth and he has is, he is shaken the Old Testament, he's shaken the law, and we know it has all fallen short, why would you, in verse 25, why would you refuse to listen to God? 
If you know he was that good of a God, he has done those things for you, why would you think you could escape if you turn away from him? If you, if you reject him, why do you think that if you reject heaven, you reject this God, why do you think you could keep pursuing the Lord? He's saying it's not possible. It's not going to happen. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He tells it to us straight. And so he says, how should we live? Verse 28, this is the verse that we read. This is a verse I hope that you memorize. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, everything in this world will be shaken. You realize in your life, many of us get so tied up in our careers that we think our job defines us, but one day that job will go away. One day they'll come to you and say, we don't need you anymore. One day you'll come to a point where you physically can't work anymore. One day we'll come to a point where your job's going to go away or this earthly kingdom's going to go away and it's going to be shaken. Everything that you identify with in this world is going to be shaken. And just for these Old Testament believers, the law was shaken. The, the sacrificial system was shaken. He's saying all that's been shaken, but let us have grace or let us have this power of God and let us live that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's it. I don't have fear and reverence for God because I have to. It's because I want to. It's because of all that God has done for me. And through Jesus Christ, how could I not give God reverence and fear in my life? How could I not respect Him? He's a good heavenly Father. And we sang the song earlier talking about how great God is and how great thou art. Does that resonate with your soul and when you love someone and you have this thing in your life that's so much greater than anything in this world that you could pursue, how in the world would you want to keep pursuing things of the world when you know you're a citizen of heaven going to a place that will never be shaken? Man, what is good news? And in verse 29, he closes that with our God is a consuming fire. That means that he will not put up with anything in our life and he burns all the impurities out of our heart. Listen, you know what chapter 12 is all about is you running your race. Listen, you have a race to run. God not only saved you, he's given you a purpose and a plan for your life. And as we run that race, sometimes we slow down in that race, right? Sometimes we're slow down and we're, we need to be told, speed back up, right? You need to get pushed back. And, and sometimes we fall out of our lane or we go out of our lane. Sometimes we fall out of the race completely. But yet the discipline of the Lord comes in our life and it keeps us in our lane. It keeps us running the race. And what he's saying here is when you get to the end of the race, it's going to be worth it all. It's going to be worth it all. The finish line is heaven. The finish line is eternity with God. And whatever you are have to persevere through this life is nothing to the kingdom that's going to come and the city of God that you're going to live in and the worship of God and the praise of God in your life and standing with Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father and being accepted to Him. There's nothing like that. Nothing. And so run your race. Take one more step. Keep going. The choice is clear. You know, when I was growing up, they called this one a no-brainer, Right? Do you want to live for Sinai or do you want to live for Zion? It's a no-brainer. Once you understand your, your purpose and your meaning in God and you understand Christ in your life and all that he means, you will want and desire to live for him and live for heaven rather than this earth. And when you do that, all the pieces fall into place. And you could persevere. You could take the next step. And so in your life, as we conclude chapter 12, I'd like to ask you, how are you doing on your race? Uh, on your race, are you running the race with perseverance and endurance? 
Have you slowed down in your race? Have you fallen off the track? Have you gotten to a point where God's gently disciplining you in your life to keep you going? Wherever it may be, and maybe you even got to a point to say, is it worth crossing the finish line? Like, I'm weary, and I'm tired, and I've been running this race a long time. Well, let me tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it, and take another step. Pursue God with all your heart, and continue on your path for the Lord, because it's going to be worth it all. It's going to be worth it all. That's what the writer tells him. Don't go back to Mount Sinai, but continue to pursue Zion, and it'll be greater than anything in your life you could ever pursue, because it is God and his city and Christ the mediator. Let's pray together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before this morning, Lord. And God, I do pray for our hearts. I pray for our journey of our faith, Lord. I pray this morning, God, maybe somebody came in here this morning, they've been shaken. Maybe they thought by good works, or maybe they thought by joining a church, or maybe they thought by trying hard that they could please you, Lord. I pray this morning, may they come to the realization that every person must come to this realization that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, that is, the, that is step A of the gospel. To understand that you can't make it. And listen, that's okay. That's okay because the solution to that is that someone made it for you. And that someone is Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He satisfied the law. He did what you couldn't do. And he did it on, because he loved you. He loves you right as you are right now. The Bible says, while we, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love towards us. And so this morning, as you come to understanding heaven, it's not because you have earned it. It's because you have been a sinner and you know God is unapproachable. But yet, through Jesus Christ, this mediator, he is an approachable God now. And through Jesus Christ, you could have something that you could never have any other way. It won't come by joining this church. It won't come by being baptized. It won't come by being a good person. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible talks about. And this morning, you can do that. You don't have to walk down this aisle. You don't have to talk to a pastor or a priest. You don't have to talk to any. You can talk to God yourself. You can ask God this morning and trust in him and say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that I have fallen short. But I know that you have made the way for me. And I trust in you, Jesus Christ, this morning. I place my faith in you. That I am going to be a citizen of heaven. That my sins have been forgiven. And the righteous demands of the law has been satisfied because of you, Lord. And what I couldn't do, you did for me. You can do that in prayer. And listen, it doesn't have to sound exactly like that. It could come from the, the, the deep uh, soul of your heart. And just expressing to the Lord that you want him in your life. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Or maybe you hear this morning, you're a Christian. You say, you know what? I have gotten off path. I've been living for the world. I've been living for my job. I've been living for material possessions. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And this morning, as we consider this, would you rather gain, gain the whole earth and miss heaven? Or would you rather gain heaven and lose this earth? Listen, this earth is broken. This earth is being shaken. This earth is going to perish one day. And anything of this world, anything of this earth is not worth pursuing. It's not worth missing heaven for. And this morning, may you just recommit your heart to the Lord. Say, God, I don't want to fall away. I want to take another step in you. I want to recommit my life to you. I want to get back on track with you, Lord. 
And I don't want to despise that discipline in my life, but I want to be encouraged by it to know that I'm your child and I want to get back on path this morning. So we're going to have a time of invitation and commitment. What happens during this time is we're going to play a song. And during this song, I just pray that you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for about a minute and a half. That's it. And I want you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, but I want your heart to, to speak to heaven. Say, Lord, here's my heart. And I want you to be obedient to whatever the Holy Spirit will put on your heart to do this morning, whatever you need to do during this time. And I pray as we, as we listen to this song, as we consider these things and the truth that God has given us this morning, that he will change